The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are stepping away from the Avengers proper and jumping into Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 3 to become an Avenger. This week's issue was written by Stan Lee, pencils by Don Heck, inks by Mike Esposito, letters by Art Simic, and layouts by John Romita Sr. And the issue comes to us in November of 1966. So initially, I thought that since things got a little heavy with the last two episodes and the social and political commentaries involved that we could go on to something a little more lighthearted with Spider-Man annual number three here and as it turns out this issue is a little bit deeper than I expected it to be though I am pleasantly surprised so it's actually a really enjoyable issue and there's a lot more depth than I assumed there would be I was really just hoping for some Avengers and Spider-Man team up fighting together a lot of great little Spider-Man in one-liners and quips during the fight and just something that's a lot of fun but it turns out there's a lot more heart and a lot more thought into this issue than I expected and that's a really good thing now, being an annual issue, this is a 72-page issue. Having said that, only about 21 to 22 pages that are new content. The other ones are reprints of Amazing Spider-Man 11 and 12. So, yes, there are 72 pages in this issue, but most of it's not new content. And so we're only going to talk about the new content, which is the To Become an Avenger story. This story opens with a meeting of the Avengers in a wonderful splash page. And the first thing that pops out is that Thor and Iron Man are present for this meeting. The team is discussing whether or not to invite Spider-Man to become an Avenger. Now, the general consensus here that comes out pretty quickly is that the Avengers don't have enough information to make an educated decision. And this really comes from the fact that Spider-Man is very much a loner in the Marvel Universe. Given the fact that, you know, he's about 15, 16 at this point, he really doesn't tend to involve him himself with various superhero teams or really team up in general with other heroes. Now this is not the first time that Spider-Man and the Avengers have come together. Obviously back in Avengers number 11 the Avengers interacted with initially what was a false Spider-Man and then followed up with a short interaction at the end of the issue with the real Spider-Man. But for the most part the web slinger really sticks to himself. Now one thing that really strikes me here aside from the particular Avengers line because it is interesting to have Thor and Iron Man back for just trying to bring a new member in, is that the Avengers, and again, particularly Iron Man and Thor, are very insistent on figuring out what kind of tests they need to give Spider-Man so that they can assess whether or not he is Avengers material. Now, conceptually, I'm not against having some kind of test, but at the same time, they keep talking about how every Avengers had to go through this when none of them have had to go through this. Obviously, none of the original Avengers did. There wasn't any kind of like audition for that they just kind of teamed up and said hey we're going to be a team and then Captain America shows up and Cap almost had a test the closest thing he had was to prove that he was Captain America and then Iron Man vouched for Hawkeye and Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch really didn't have a test. The closest thing Quicksilver had was he raced Tony Stark's car home from the airport and that wasn't really a test that was more Quicksilver showing off. 
So this insistence on a test doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And we'll see it kind of play out in this issue as really to the detriment of the team and what they're trying to accomplish. Because they don't have enough information, the Avengers decide that that's their first mission is to gather more information. And Hawkeye recommends that they send for Daredevil because he's had some recent interactions with Spider-Man and can give them a better sense of who he is and what he's about. So the Avengers use high frequency radio pulses to get Daredevil's attention and he comes and meets with the Avengers briefly and says yeah I've, I've worked with Spider-Man before and I think he is definitely Avengers material he actually says if he's being considered as a potential Avenger he gets my highest recommendation now a couple things here first off is that the Avengers have had no interactions with Daredevil prior to this this is in fact their first meeting with Daredevil and outside of Doctor Strange the Avengers have now met up with pretty much all of the major heroes of the Marvel universe. So I'm kind of curious as to why the Avengers take Daredevil's word when they've never dealt with him, but they've dealt with Spider-Man at least a little bit, and they're not just going off of their own experiences with Spider-Man. That To me, that part doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, I have no issue with them calling Daredevil. I like seeing him show up in the issue, and I get that it's a little bit of cross-pollination here, trying to push the sales of Daredevil a little bit. Daredevil at this point is still fairly new. We actually see down at the bottom of the panel where Hawkeye and Captain America are talking with Daredevil. It references three issues in which Spider-Man and Daredevil have had interactions. Just Spider-Man 16, where Spider-Man saves Matt Murdock from a gang of thugs not realizing he's Daredevil. And then later on, they end up fighting the Circus of Crime. And then in Daredevil 16 and 17, would come shortly before this issue a fake Daredevil attacks Spider-Man and then Spider-Man and the real Daredevil get into a fight for a couple of issues. So Daredevil does have a lot more experience with Spider-Man than the Avengers do, but the Avengers have no experience with Daredevil, so it just baffles me a little bit that the Avengers would put so much emphasis on Daredevil's opinion. Having said that, I agree with Daredevil's assessment, and so do the Avengers. So they decide that they are going to set out and find Spider-Man to invite him to Avengers Mansion to proceed with the test and an invitation to join the team and the panels of the Avengers going out to search for Spider-Man are really great we get a panel of Hawkeye of Thor and of Iron Man on one page and all three of them are spectacular but I'm a huge fan of the Thor and Iron Man panels Hawkeye's is cool because he's on the jet scooter but it, it obstructs Hawkeye himself a little bit whereas Thor and Iron Man are front and center and look great I don't necessarily agree with their inclusion in the issue just because they've been inactive members of the team for so long that it seems a little out of place but if they're gonna be here they better look this good i like them a lot more being in this issue because they look so good now the flip side of that is we've got three great looking panels and then we have a panel of goliath and wasp wading through a crowd looking for a spider-man and it is kind of painful the art is not bad at all but the lettering is not art simic's finest work the panel is just so overcrowded with word balloons now to be fair the reality here is that art simic is doing the best he can with the script that exists the letterer's job is to put the script in the panel as much as possible and there is just too much talking in this panel so i don't blame art simic for it i blame stan lee for it but it's rough and it's also it's very difficult to tell exactly what order you should be reading these bubbles in to an extent it doesn't matter because it's a lot of the crowd talking about seeing Goliath and Wasp walking through. But having said that, there still should be a little bit more of a logical flow to it. And to be perfectly honest, that's a little bit of a complaint I have throughout 
the whole issue is that the speech bubbles don't always flow very well, especially the more bubbles there are. While most of the Avengers are looking for Spider-Man, Spider-Man's off doing his web-slinging thing, and he is eventually found by Thor, which is a really entertaining and interesting pairing, because you couldn't have picked two characters, at least in my opinion, that are more different. Thor is the god of thunder, and he carries a certain amount of gravitas, and he is fairly serious most of the time, whereas Spider-Man is hes a teenager, he's lovable, he's got all the one-liners and the quips, he's sarcastic, he's funny at inappropriate times. As we'll see later in the issue, he does not always read the situation correctly. So the interaction between he and Thor, I don't say it goes badly, but it certainly is not what I would call a good first impression, right? Thor tries to explain to Spider-Man the great honor that the Avengers wish to bestow upon him. And Spider-Man basically says, look, I didn't ask to be an Avenger. I don't know that I want that. I need to think about this for a little bit. And Thor gets kind of perturbed for a moment. Now, thankfully, he keeps his cool and realizes that, you know, Spider-Man may actually not be wrong. He says, perhaps you are right. I cannot expect an outsider to share my own deep feelings for the Avengers. Therefore, I shall take my leave and allow you time to ponder the matter. You shall have 24 hours to contact us. So be it. You know, Thor is very dramatic, and Stan frequently writes him in a kind of faux Shakespearean style. Thor is very grandiose. He makes broad, sweeping proclamations. He deals a little bit more in absolutes than I think than some of the other Avengers do, where Spider-Man is more of like a teen comedy, right? It's lighthearted, it's funny. Yeah, there are touching moments to it, but in general, it's not this grand, sweeping, speech-delivering kind of feel to it. So the pairing here is just really interesting to observe, and I think an interesting choice on the part of Stan Lee. Now, once Thor departs, Peter makes his way home to, of course, Aunt May. And this is still back in the fairly early days of Spider-Man, so Aunt May is very old and fairly decrepit, and she sends Peter off to go get what most old people need, which is prescriptions. While he does this, Peter has some time to think about what's going on. So he goes and he gets the prescription for Aunt May and he hangs out at the drugstore for a little bit because it's still the 1960s. So there's a like a lunch counter or a soda fountain, something of that nature while he waits for the prescription. And he's really torn. Peter understands the honor and the amazing opportunity that being an Avenger would be. But he is very divided on what he should do because he knows that Aunt May relies on him and that if he becomes an Avenger, he may not be able to be there for Aunt May in the way he needs to be. Now, in the end, what he decides is that he's at least going to go and hear out the Avengers, see what they have to say. And we get a great splash page, a full page of the Avengers very warmly greeting Spider-Man, welcoming him to their meeting Aside from just being a good-looking page, this is a page that has a lot of word balloons that doesn't necessarily feel like it's got a lot of word balloons because they tend to stay out of the way of the really important stuff. Right? There's a lot going on here in terms of dialogue. Similar to the Goliath and Wasp walking through a crowd scene, I like it better here, one, because I care about the Avengers and I really don't care about some random person on the street in New York talking about the Avengers. And I think it actually helps the fact that we hear from all of the Avengers 
characters to get that sense of warmth and that they want him here, right? Everyone is greeting Spider-Man. Everyone wants him to be here. And you really get that feeling. Now, unfortunately, that feeling doesn't stick around all that long because Spider-Man lets the Avengers know, okay, I'm ready for my test. And they say, yeah, yeah, about that. We, um, we haven't decided what that test is. And Spider-Man gets a little perturbed in that, you know, he's here and spending his time and they haven't figured out what they're doing. Iron Man actually asks him to step out of the room for a while while the adults talk is really kind of the feeling I get. And Spider-Man basically says, hey, you guys invited me here. I'm not here begging. I'm spending my time here. Let's either get this going or I'm out. And... Unfortunately, this just kind of starts a chain reaction of things that lead to Spider-Man confronting all of the Avengers somewhat simultaneously. I really put the fault for this confrontation squarely at the feet of the Avengers. And here's why. I've actually got a fairly substantial list. So first off, they invited Spider-Man to come join the Avengers when they hadn't figured out exactly what it was that he was going to be required to do in order to be eligible for membership. Now, while that may not seem like a huge thing, what that tells me is that the Avengers didn't have things together. Before they ever invited Spider-Man over, they should have known exactly what was needed to be done, what Spider-Man needed to accomplish in order to be invited to the Avengers. Secondly, things got heated really quickly, especially on the part of Iron Man and Thor who aren't active members. They're not actively a part of the team. They're literally here to talk about Spider-Man. To me, it feels like you've got a couple of retired guys come into a company and then start trying to direct things that are specific to the day-to-day operations of, of the company, right? Okay, yeah, if they're talking about the retirement, sure, whatever. Then they've got to say, but what do two guys who are not actively working care about like working hours right what do two inactive team members care about how the active team members evaluate a new member and bring someone on board especially when they all agree that he is a person that they are interested in bringing on board that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and the fact that those two in particular get really fired up Thirdly, yes, Spider-Man makes the first move, but what becomes obvious very quickly is that Spider-Man has misjudged this situation. Initially, he starts to think that maybe confronting the Avengers is the test. As Iron Man and Thor and Hawkeye start getting into Spider-Man's face, he said, maybe this is the test. Maybe they want me to get mad. And then he starts fighting them, and a couple panels later, he says, this can't be the test. They all seem too serious about it. Spider-Man is still a teenager. Now, I will grant that the Avengers have no idea he's still a teenager, but the fact that this starts to escalate because a 15-year-old misjudged the situation, I have a hard time laying blame on the 15-year-old for that. Kids sometimes screw up and misread a situation, and that is obviously what happened here. And lastly, and again, I've pointed this out, no other Avenger has had to take a test like this. So the fact that they are getting so worked up about this test is really just baffling to me when it's something they've never had to do before. Now, it's fine if they want to introduce a new policy, but that's not really what they're doing here. They're holding Spider-Man to a standard that they claim everyone else has been held to, and they haven't. Now, having said all that, we get some really nice close-up action sequences between the Avengers because they're fighting in a meeting room inside Avengers Mansion. There's some room, but not a lot, especially when you've got six Avengers plus Spider-Man. You get some real close quarters grappling kind of fighting, and I like it. It looks really good. 
Now, while all of this is going on, finally Iron Man comes up with the quote-unquote perfect idea, and that is for Spider-Man to go and find the Hulk, because Hulk has been spotted near New York City again. So that's Spider-Man's task, is to go find the Hulk. Now, there's a couple problems with this, and the first one is that the Avengers don't tell him why, which is really kind of key, because if they had explained that we want you to find Hulk and get him to come here, he was one of our teammates, but he He's not anymore, but we really think he needs help. All we're trying to do is help him. Then maybe Spider-Man executes the mission a little bit differently here. The other issue, and it's more my personal issue, is why are they going after Hulk again? The Avengers haven't gone after Hulk since issue 17, back when the new team started chasing down rumors of Hulk. There is no good reason at this point for the Avengers to still be going after Hulk. Just let him be. And again, if you notice, it was Iron Man's suggestion. Want to know whose idea it was to go chasing after Hulk at the end of Avengers 16, which drove them to go chase after him in Avengers 17? It was Iron Man's. Just pointing that one out there, people. At any rate, Spider-Man goes off and starts to go look for the Hulk. And New York is a big city, so at first he doesn't have a whole lot of luck. He's getting a little tired, getting a little thirsty, so he decides to stop by his old friend J. Jonah Jameson. And this is one of the best sequences in the entire issue, because it is so perfectly the interaction between these two characters. The only thing missing for me was something to the effect of J. Jonah Jameson reaching for a bottle of blood pressure pills, as he just gets spun up by Spider-Man hanging out in his office with him. After stealing some water from Jameson's cooler, Spider-Man's getting ready to leave when one of the other reporters at the Daily Bugle comes in and says, hey, there's been a radio report that Hulk has been spotted over by the Gamma Ray Research Center because Hulk and Gamma Rays. So Spider-Man heads out the window and makes his way over there, knowing that he will definitely beat the reporters there because web slinging is significantly faster than taking a cab. And lo and behold, when Spider-Man reaches the research center, there is Hulk. And Spider-Man promptly engages him because, again, he's on this mission with only about half of the relevant information. So he just immediately engages Hulk, thinking that's what he needs to be doing. Now, what I like about this is compared to the fights we've had in the Avengers previously, especially against Hulk, this fight is far more acrobatic because the nature of Spider-Man allows for that. At the moment, we don't really have anyone in the Avengers who functions quite like that. To some extent, Wasp fits that role a little bit because she can do it with her flying, but in the Marvel Universe, very few people are as acrobatic as Spider-Man and it makes for a unique kind of fight, especially against a character that we've seen fight several times, like the Hulk. Now, eventually, as the fight goes on, Hulk doesn't really pay attention to what he's doing and smashes through a wall that is shielding basically the outside world, so to speak, from these gamma ray test devices. And as he does so, he is bombarded with more gamma rays. And as we've seen in the past, when bombarded by further gamma rays, Hulk turns back into Bruce Banner. And we get a very touching page of conversations between Bruce Banner and Spider-Man. For one, Spider-Man's kind of a fan. And I love that because it plays into one of the things 
things we've seen in the recent Spider-Man Homecoming in that there is a picture of Bruce Banner hanging up in one of Peter Parker's science classes. It also really gives us a, I think, a better feeling of the Jekyll and Hyde nature of Hulk than we've seen in Avengers previously. When Hulk turns into Banner, he knows that he's been doing terrible things, or at least things that he would not want to be doing otherwise, but he doesn't clearly remember him. It's all fuzzy and lacking in clarity, and he honestly feels that the best thing Spider-Man could have done was to destroy the Hulk. Now, obviously, Spider-Man is not going to be able to destroy the Hulk, just power-wise, but the fact that Banner believes that's what's best for everyone. If you've read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know that by the end of the book, Jekyll comes to the realization that Hyde has to be destroyed, that he has to, for the benefit of everyone, including Jekyll, Hyde has to be destroyed, and in order to do that, he, Jekyll, has to die. Banner very much feels the same way. Spider-Man also feels here that Hulk and Banner are really just as much the victims as anyone else. Earlier in the fight, Hulk mentions that everyone else wants to fight the Hulk. Why are you fighting the Hulk too? And Spider-Man actually says, you know, he's got a point there. He didn't come looking for me. I came looking for him. He didn't want this fight. I did. And Spider-Man starts to think, why is that? He doesn't get to go much more in depth at that moment in time. But as Banner turns back into Hulk and Spider-Man tries to wrap him up and tie him up in webs, he realizes that turning Hulk over to the Avengers, based on the information that Spider-Man has, is not the best answer. Had he known what the Avengers intended, the fact that they're really trying to help him, whether or not that help is wanted or even going to do anything... They at least have the right intention, but Spider-Man doesn't know that. So instead, Spider-Man lets Hulk go because Hulk isn't out there looking for a fight. Hulk doesn't want to really interact with people. Hulk wants to be left alone. And whatever Spider-Man thinks is about to happen, Hulk doesn't necessarily deserve it. And he doesn't think Dr. Banner deserves it. So... In the end, Spider-Man lets him go and goes back and tells the Avengers that he was never able to find Hulk. Now, the Avengers are kind of suspicious about this, and I, again, kind of fault them here for not digging deeper into what's going on, because it really is pretty clear that Spider-Man's not telling the whole story here, and then the Avengers never never do anything about it, which I think is negligent on their part. Spider-Man could have been a valuable addition to the team, but because of their lack of caring to an extent, they lose out on a new team member. And unfortunately, you know, Peter once again is struggling with things. You know, Spider-Man is one of those characters more specifically Peter Parker, really, who he does his best with what he has. And a lot of times, at least in his real life, it's not enough. He tries to make money to help support he and Aunt May. He tries to deal with the grief for having inadvertently caused the death of Uncle Ben. And now he tries to balance being Spider-Man with everything else. And a lot of times he just comes up short. It's one of the beautiful things about Spider-Man and Marvel comics, especially of this era, that life isn't perfect and these characters aren't perfect. And it's what makes these books so relatable. Now, in the end here, one of the things I think I have noticed, in especially in reading this issue, is that to me it's interesting that most of heroes being a hero or their their powers are a burden like iron man in order to be iron man he had to suffer this chest injury and now he wears this chest plate to keep him alive goliath is stuck at 10 feet tall captain america is a man out of time if you look at other marvel comics at the same time cyclops is constantly complaining about how his powers are a burden how being a hero is a burden you get characters like the thing
thing who can no longer blend into normal society. I mean, it's kind of a, a common motif that these characters deal with, that their powers are often a blessing and a, and a a curse at the same time. Now, there are some characters that at least enjoy their powers, like Angel, but like being an X-Men is still still kind of the burden. It's still difficult. Spider-Man, I feel, is kind of the opposite of that, in that his powers are, are a burden to an extent, but really the superheroics for him seem to be freeing. It's a release from reality. It's a chance for him to do things that he as Peter Parker can't do. That the 15-year-old nerd really is unable to achieve these kinds of things, whereas Spider-Man can. And Spider-Man frequently really revels in being Spider-Man. He likes it. It has a cost. Of course, there's the with great power comes great responsibility, but I think Peter Parker struggles far more than Spider-Man does. And that's a very interesting way to look at things. And again, I think this is one of the things that differentiates especially Marvel Comics and DC Comics and it's the perspective that Marvel Comics are men trying to be gods and DC frequently is gods trying to be men, right? Superman doesn't have these problems. Superman doesn't struggle to make rent. Peter Parker does. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. And if you like what we do here, make sure you leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your podcatcher of choice. It helps us get the word out there. Next week, we're going to be going back to Avengers proper with Avengers number 34, The Living Laser. All right, hey... All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. <laughs>